Hi, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Better Movement podcast. My guest this week is Israel Halperin, who is an expert in training for sport, especially combat sports. Israel has traveled the world competing in kickboxing and Thai boxing, coaching elite level combat athletes, and doing research as a sports scientist and also teaching as a professor about topics related to sports training. So Israel has deep and extensive knowledge about training for sport on the level of personal experience, working with athletes, and doing research in the lab. I started following Israel's research more than five years ago when he was publishing about the effects of foam rolling, where an athlete should put their attention when exercising, and non-local muscle fatigue. One thing that I really like about Israel's mindset is that he fully respects the complexity of the subject matter, and he's very willing to admit when he's uncertain about something or to change his mind. In this podcast, we talked about Israel's experiences in combat sports, the differences in training methods used in different countries, whether resistance training is really needed to be an elite athlete in combat sports, why athletes perform better when they can choose their own exercises and the replication crisis in sports science and a whole lot more too. I really enjoyed this conversation. Here it is. Israel Halperin, thanks for coming on my podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Todd. I look forward to it. Okay, good. So uh, you are a combat athlete. You've competed in combat sports like uh, Taekwondo and kickboxing, and you've also coached athletes in the same field, and you're a researcher and a sports scientist, and you research topics that would be interesting to trainers and people who want to know how the, how the body works, and we're going to talk about all that. Uh, I want to start off with your experience as a combat athlete, and uh, I just kind of want to know what what is that like? What's it like getting in the ring and and fighting with people? Yeah, sure, no problem. So um, I started uh, my career really early. I started with uh, just doing mostly traditional martial arts, and uh, over time, I uh, tried other. How old were you when you started? Probably around ten-ish, I would say. Give or take, I don't have even have a clear memory of when exactly I started, but I suppose I took a real uh, a path that many combat athletes have taken. I started with traditional um, martial arts, I would say, that have uh, yeah, it was like karate, kung fu, things of that nature. At some point, I think I was roughly thirteen or fourteen. I transitioned into more uh, combat-oriented sports, um, but back then it was. Uh, what nowadays we call MMA, mixed martial arts. That was a, a gym that included uh, kickboxing, jiu-jitsu, judo, wrestling, things that are more applied in nature, I would say, and also are more combat or more sport-orientated rather than the arts, so to speak. So it's very practical and pragmatic. Yeah, so some of the some of the martial arts, well, I've never noticed that word before, arts. So there's art right there in the world, in the word. Some of the martial arts are about kind of like doing a choreographed, rehearsed kind of a presentation. It's almost like bears a similarity to dance and that you're going through forms. And, you know, the purpose of it is to kind of like do a bunch of steps. But then you've got the sports where there's a defined outcome and you're and you're and often the outcome is like getting a submission or something like that. It, um but something like karate, it could be both, right? Yeah, definitely can be both. I should note right away that I've got nothing against martial arts. I'm just personally more attracted to combat sports uh, growing up. Uh, and I think that now as, a, as an older scientist, I'm not as young, I'm not competitive. I see a lot of value in doing anything, any physical activity. And martial arts can definitely hit the spot for many people and has many health benefits. I just wanted to get that out of the way. I've got nothing but respect to martial arts but I was more attracted to uh, the combat sports. So there's nothing spiritual about it, so to speak. It's just what's the most effective way of, uh, of gaining an outcome, which would be winning about with, with given rules. Right, right. So I'm kind of interested in, in kind of like the borderland between those two things, because I've never done any kind of martial arts. And I always thought, you know, in a different life, that would be a, a fun thing to do. And then, but 
but one of the things that I would uh, I would I would really wonder how I'd respond to is being in any kind of a real life fighting situation. What's it like when you start doing that, and how do they get people into dealing with you know the fear of getting really hurt or having a huge adrenaline rush when you're in this confrontation? Well, I can speak on my behalf. I uh, always dealt horribly with the stress before fights, uh, before competitions. I couldn't believe what I got myself into. I would, the, the, the discussion, the internal discussions I would have would be horrible. I, I, I personally, again, as, as an athlete, I would stress out. And if you'd ask me, of course, this is anecdotal and not scientific, but I can tell you that during, I've dislocated my shoulder twice in my life. And the two times that uh, I've dislocated my shoulder occurred in, uh, in competitions. And not because even the opponent did something particular to me. At one of the, uh, of the bouts, I just, the second the, the, the bout begun, I just, at least that's how I memorize it, I just stepped forward and I dislocated my shoulder. It just, really? Yeah, and I personally think it was just a matter of stress. I was under a lot of stress. I never dealt with my stress very well. Uh, I suppose later on as I matured, that became, relatively speaking, I became better at doing that, but I never... Uh, was excellent and that in contrast to a lot of the athletes that I've worked with that have done a much better job than myself. I would assume that over time, as you habituate yourself to the stressful situation, you don't have as much of a, you know, an adrenaline rush or something like that. Uh, did you feel that kind of happening over time, like gaining a skill and managing your, your emotions? As I said, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you get better at this. There's no question about that, but it's still relative. I mean, relative to myself, I've got better relative to others. I was always horrible at that. And that is a decisive factor as to how well you you uh, succeed or you don't in such events. And that is why it's so critical to, I mean, if your goal in training is not to compete, but to prepare yourself to something that might occur in real life, there's definitely a benefit of exposing yourself that within some reason because the shock that a person that uh, will, will go through uh, encountering a real life fight is just unimaginable unless you and then even within a ring you're still controlled right you're protected you're still within you're fighting within some rules so you know there's you can get injured to a limit saying that you're like you, you're not going to get stabbed right or things of that nature so there's you're still within some constraints. Well, the, the limit is pretty high, though. I mean, if you're doing kickboxing, you can get kicked in the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually true. You could. That, that's a pretty serious uh, situation. It is a very serious situation. It's horrible things can happen. But it can still get worse if there's no judge in there to call the bat off, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I'm also curious about like the sportsmanship uh, issue. Like I've played soccer and I've, you know, we, it's kind of aggressive physical contact sport and people can get hurt and you push and shove and, and call each other names when you're playing. But when it's over, you're supposed to shake hands and have beers and, and it's all fine. Uh, and I understand that. But I also see that happening in the combat sports and like UFC fights. And I find it kind of amazing. <laughs> It is. I, I, I enjoy watching that. I mean, to, to me personally, again, when I competed, it was re always critical to be on good terms with uh, with the person I was uh, competing against. It was critical for me. I mean, I never wanted anything to do with bad blood. Before the fight, especially, it was important for me. I don't know why. After the fight, for the most part, most people are on good terms. Before, there could be tension and a buildup, and I hated that. Um, to me, it was just a sport. I wanted to challenge myself. To this day, I don't really understand why I pushed myself as much as I did, knowing that to some extent it wasn't natural for me because I didn't deal that well with the stress. But I suppose the challenge is something that, I mean, I hated my, the idea of going into the ring right before it uh, led to insane levels of stress. But after the bat was over, the, the, I felt I loved that feeling and immediately I wanted more. Now saying that, I don't know what the... Those listening, I was never, at most, I was a medium-level athlete, right? I mean, I did work with a lot of international world-class athletes. I don't I don't think I ever reached that level. I did compete in international level, had some successes, but I never made it to the top end. But uh, you, one of the interesting things about your experience was that you were able to train with athletes from lots of different places. 
So what is, and these places I assume have very different cultures around the way they train people technically and fitness wise, and probably in terms of the culture of having sportsmanship and dealing with the stress. What, what was it like to see the way people train in different areas? Yeah, I do. I mean, th that's uh, an experience that I've gathered that I did first as an athlete. I lived and uh, I lived, trained and competed. And uh, I spent time in the States two years. Full time. That's what I did. I, I moved to the States in Los Angeles. I lived there and I trained and I competed and I trained with some of the best gyms, uh, MMA gyms. That was in 2000. I spent a year in Thailand Again, just full-time training and competing. And then I, I spend pockets of time in Europe and in Israel. So I got a taste from a training perspective, but then also as a coach. I've, I've spent time in Canada working as, as a coach with, with world-class athletes. Uh, during my PhD, which was done at the Australian Institute of Sport, part of my role was to be a sports scientist supporting the combat sports as they prepared for the Rio Olympics. And during that time, not only did I get a chance to work with the uh, Olympic athletes, there are continuous uh, camps that, that, um, that um, countries, uh, teams from different countries would come in all from all over the world. And I'd get a chance to test the athletes, speak to them, talk to their coaches. And I, so if you ask me what my, if I had to summarize one main conclusion that I've uh, arrived to is that most things tend to work. You can skin a cat in more than one way. There isn't, I mean, it's nothing that you're, the listeners I'm sure haven't heard before, but nevertheless, this is still a conclusion that I've reached over and over again. You can, you can become a world champion or you can become a champion in many different ways. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of like goes to some, one of your major uh, coaching philosophies is that, is, uh, that I've heard you espouse is that um, you shouldn't get wedded to any one system too much be, because of what you said, there's lots of uh, different systems for getting the job done. Yeah. And, and well, the system, I mean, the way I see it is just an interaction with the athlete and just everything unfolds. I, I embrace uncertainty for me. I don't know why. And for what reason, it's very easy to work to, to appreciate and accept the fact that I'm going to be throwing something at the athlete. And I'm going to be very tentative to see how the athlete will respond to that. And of course, it's not absolute guesswork, but I try something. I try to, if, if I make a mistake, I like to make small mistakes and early mistakes so I can shift the process and change what I'm doing as it unfolds. But I most definitely don't have a preset plan that I follow with, with every person that I've worked with. I would even say that I can't think of any athlete that I went through the same path with, not only that, even the same athletes as they matured, and I matured, and I've learned as a, as a coach, we, we went in different ways. We've explored, we try new things. So, I mean, if I had to write a coaching book, it's like, well, I don't know what I'd write there. I mean, I would just really fine tune the, the, the philosophy of how you should explore and try new things and on what you should base your knowledge and maybe decision-making processes, but it certainly wouldn't be do this exercise, you know? Yeah, let's talk about, uh, like, uh, I like uh, deciding, you know, what's essential about training by looking at, well, all the different ways people train and then maybe find out what they have in common. So I'd be curious, is are there people that train martial artists and fighters and kickboxers up to the highest levels who almost don't do that much resistance training at all? I don't know oh, that much yeah. about this. Yeah. Certainly, certainly so. I mean, to begin with, we go to Thailand, which is uh, the mecca of high boxing in the world. Naturally, it's it's the <laughs> uh, national sport. But still, it's it's a very popular sport. It's always it's for years been borderline uh, an Olympic sport. They're always right on the cusp. And 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 uh, at the world level, the um, so, so as I said before, it really is borderline uh, an Olympic sport. Their, org their amateur organization, which if the sport will become Olympic, that's the rules that they're going to be competing in. I, I actually participated in one of the world championships when I was younger, never succeeded. But you see the level of, of uh, that sport and how progress and, and, and develop is all over the world. And yet the Thais, for years, they rarely do any type of resistance training, at least the kind that 
you'd commonly see in, in other countries that are very sophisticated in their approach with the, with the loads that they're lifting and, and very particular ways of planning that that it doesn't happen in a lot of countries and that doesn't happen in a lot of gyms, independent of countries. So yet they still succeed. And to me, that is critical because that's kind of like a black swan. It's not mandatory. What is mandatory is to train hard in your sport, right? You that's, cannot that's take for that sure, yeah. that, that is a given. Everything beyond that, well, there's some degrees of flexibility. Let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Well, this is I, go ahead. I'll just, I'll just like to add one more thing. In my opinion, it also does depend on the sport. So striking sports, so kicking or punching sports, kickboxing, boxing, taekwondo, in my opinion, they are they can get away easier or they cannot they can get away at all without doing resistance training. But sports that are more uh, wrestling and grappling based probably would benefit. I mean, I suppose everybody would benefit to some extent of resistance training. It's just a question of dose and intensity and timing and things like that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like, it's important for me to differentiate between the striking sport and the grappling sport. And they are, I wouldn't group, I mean, they are all part of combat sports, but if you want to specialize in one of the others, the requirements would, would, would differ. Yeah, so, but it, aren't there guys that do uh, jujitsu at high levels that don't do any weight training as well? Yeah, I'm sure they exist. I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm- But you, but, but you might not recommend it. You would say, okay, if you, you're not doing any resistance training and you're in a grappling sport here, we, we should really probably consider that. Exactly. And that's the speculative language that I would say. I wouldn't talk with certainty. I was like, well, you know, it does have benefits. And there is definitely some, some direct, mostly indirect uh, body of evidence that would suggest that it, there's a good likelihood that it will assist you in some way. To what extent and in what way, uh, I'll be more hesitant to, to, you know, it'll probably improve your performance. Yeah. It could possibly reduce the likelihood of injury, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But it's it's something I, I, I would still think it's, it's, it's a risk worth taking. Is that because of the benefits of having extra mass or is that because the similarity to the type of the movement? Because when you're punching, you're moving really, really, really fast. And when you're lifting weights, you're kind of moving slow and that might be closer to the type of slow movement that ha is happening in grappling or? Well, you see, you, there's so many ways, so many angles you can go on about it. But at the end of the day, I'll just give a simpler explanation. There's only a given amount of hours a week that you can train. And we know one thing for sure. If you want to get better at your sport, you got to practice your sport. Nobody will question that. That is so obvious that it's not even discussed. So if I steal a unit of time from my um, limited amount of hours a week to do something that I speculate will carry over to the sport rather than knowing that there is a direct carryover, then that's a risk already right there. So then the question, well, is it worth it? Is it worth taking an hour of me not practicing my sport and doing something else? With the assumption, uh, and it's an educated assumption, right? But it's still an assumption that will improve the sport. Well, you know, it's it's that's why I, I say there is a risk. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that idea that uh, of specificity, and it reminds me of the said principle a little bit. One thing I always found kind of confusing was that when you're training for a sport that involves a lot of explosive activity, like like your sports, you know, you 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 do something really fast and then you rest. Uh, there can be a lot of benefit, or at least some people claim there can be a lot of benefit to doing a kind of uh, uh, exercise that isn't really like that, which is like long, slow distance aerobic training. So I've heard that uh, from guys like Joel Jameson that developing the aerobic system, getting an aerobic base, engaging in like, I don't know what you'd call road work or just kind of running slowly would be really beneficial to a combat athlete, even though when you get in the gym, you're not moving slowly and it's this kind of anaerobic kind of a thing. Yeah, that, that is first an excellent point that, that always is, is being brought up. So with this one particular topic, whether you should do road work or not, um, I, I lean, well, it depends of course on the athlete too, like striking sports versus combat sports, et cetera. But as a whole, I tend to be for it. Not necessarily. I mean, I do agree with Joel. I think that it is important to develop. I mean, there's some adaptations that occur when you do the steady state stuff. 
that you're just not going to get the exact same adaptations as you would following just doing high intensity interval training. Part of what I'm saying right now is really just based on my experience as a coach and an athlete, not so much about the, the body of evidence right now, because I do, this is one of those areas that I, I, one of the few areas that I tend to go with, with uh, my experience. And I've noticed that road work does tend to uh, add, add some added value that it just seems to be inescapable. Now the benefits could also be mental. It could also be indirect uh, uh, positives that I can't really pinpoint what they are, but I put it this way, the athletes that I work with, I would have them do some uh, steady state uh, runs as Joe would do and others. That's something that within limits, of course, right? So when I was living in Thailand, they would have me run every morning and every afternoon and I forget long distances. I would run over sometimes 10 kilometers a day. And after a very short duration, I was just so fatigued. I was just so fatigued. It was just so hard for me to get through the training. For them, it's nothing. Maybe they grew up doing it. I don't know. They're well adapted. For me, as a foreigner, it was relatively heavier to, uh, to the ties that competed lower weight classes. That just killed me. It didn't work out well for me. So with the athletes that I work with, of course, it also depends on how much, how many hours a week do you get to train. And as a function of that, I'll, I'll usually uh, allocate time to doing things that may directly or indirectly improve your performance. Yeah. And maybe doing that kind of, so you go, you're talking about the cost of exercise. We think about the benefits of doing a certain type of exercise, but you have to think about the cost too, because it's stealing exactly. time and it's stealing energy away from other things that you might be able to do. But perhaps with doing this kind of uh, high volume, low intensity aerobic work, the cost isn't that high because it doesn't tap so much into your reserves to be able to get in the gym and do other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you do, you do get some unique adaptations out of it that I presume you carry over to, to, uh, to an extent to the actual sport, even though it doesn't resemble it. Of course, it's, it can be your, the only thing you do for your uh, conditioning, but as a component, I see value to it. Yeah, you, you mentioned kind of the uh, uh, the almost the mental toughness aspect of, of doing this this type of a work. Um, it it kind of reminded me of a story I heard from a guy here in the states that does uh, the Thai the Thai boxing, and I was asking him how did you how do they get their shins desensitized to uh, <laughs> to getting hit, right? Yeah. Because they, they don't don't the don't the Thai boxers do a lot of hitting with their shins, and there's kind of like a, they somehow desensitize them. Well, yeah, I mean, I, doesn't it hurt to get, isn't it supposed to hurt? Well, yeah, it does hurt. But I suppose after you do that from such a young age, uh, what with the physiological mechanism, I'm not sure of. But yeah, uh, you, you do tend to, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not that it's numb, of course, right? But put it that way, if somebody else would get hit a shin to shin, the way you'd get in a fight, people would just be falling on the ground yelling. And for them, it's, it's or, or, or anyone who's well-trained and conditioned, uh, they, they, they would just, they'll be fine. I wouldn't. Uh, well, this, what this guy was telling me is like, how did that, how does that happen? He goes, well, you know, the funny thing is, is I was training here in the States and it, it always really bothered me. And it really bothered me. Uh, when I went to train in Thailand, People just didn't complain about it. They didn't talk about it. They acted like it wasn't a thing. And then it kind of stopped being a thing for me too. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's a part of it as well. And the addition of just getting hit on that spot hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times, something in the physiology or whatever there changes and, and uh, you just get used to it, right? And you don't respond the same way that you would otherwise. Yeah. So let's talk about coaching a little bit. You said you can go a lot of different ways with people and everyone's individual and everything's complex and you shouldn't get tied down to any kind of a program. But I'm sure like when you get with an athlete, there's certain like categories of things you would assess, like maybe they're aerobic or they're this kind of fitness or uh, do you test their strength or do you do you ever test uh, movement patterns like, you know, FMS kinds of stuff? What, what are the general kind of categories of stuff you, you look for? You see, so to give, a, it, so my answer would depend and, and first and foremost on, on, um, on just the environment and what I have access to and who the athlete that I'm working with. To give you an idea, if someone who's just 
training a few times a week and just wants to compete for you know an amateur level, then I would approach coaching that person very differently than uh, than an Olympic athlete, right? So that's the question of how much of their week they're willing to dedicate and what are their goals. But the first thing I'll do is always just question, just just talk to the athlete and talk to the coach. He just get an idea of where we are, who am I going to be working with, what are the goals, what are the timelines. Um, and also it's critical for me to work with a head coach, assuming that I'm there as a strength and conditioning coach and not the combat sport myself, to get a good picture of where things are. I think that is critical even indirectly because I, I don't want to be perceived as a threat. I don't want to threat the coach. I don't want to come there and it's like, okay, we're going to change everything right now. We're going to start loading you in the squat. No, no, I just want to talk. I just want to get a, I mean, as a function of the expectations and what the person thinks is important and what they really don't want to do, I account for that heavily. So to me, that will thrive some as physiological aspects as well. If I think that they need to do some resistance training, but they're horribly resistant to the idea, it's just probably not going to work. Yeah. Eventually not going to so that is the first thing I do before any assessment. Then what I do after that, after developing a tentative plan of or an idea of who I'm working with, what are the end goals, et cetera, I'll try to actually watch the athlete compete. I'll ask for some videos. I want to observe. I want to. I would see them train a few times, watch some of the, the bouts, try to see if I can catch something. And that is based on my experience, right? Then from that point onward, it will depend. Uh, if I have, I mean, when I was living in Australia, of course, I had access to the best facilities in the world and I could test pretty much whatever I wanted. I had access to a punching integrator that could assess punching velocity and impact forces. I don't have access to that anywhere else in the world, so I just don't assist that. But it really does depend on the function of what I have access to. I may or may not assess certain things as a function of what the coach and athlete are after. So as, as you see, what I'm trying to get at is it just evolves and unfolds in unpredictable ways. Now, I will say this. I rarely assess an isolated, um, um, what's the term I'm looking for, an isolated component. I would do that, but I don't really care what the 1RM is of most athletes that I've worked with. I should note again, that I've mostly worked in recent years with striking sports, boxers, kickboxers, tie boxers, that kind of thing. I don't really care for that that much. I will, if at times I may test, at times I may not. Um, it's it's an unscientific approach, perhaps some would say, because I don't really assess that frequently, but I don't know. And, and then I, here I am, a scientist, a sports scientist, but this, this, is, this is how I approach things. Yeah, it, I mean, it resonates. It resonates yeah. so much with uh, the way I think about helping people that are in pain. And, and I have probably have some physical therapists that are listening to this podcast will say that is that is so similar to the way we treat people with pain, because in our community, there's a bunch of formulas and algorithms and templates and assessments and objective procedures that tend to be kind of applied to people in a mechanistic way. Uh, but, uh, what I kind of prefer and a lot of other people, uh, prefer is, is, you know, treating people as individuals, letting the plan emerge, definitely being very interested in what, what the patient thinks about why it hurts and what needs to be done and, and incorporating that into the plan and letting, you know, the right plan kind of emerge as a result of, of like an interaction and exploration and trial and error and all this kind of stuff. And I know you've done specific research on the benefit of letting people kind of choose their own exercises or state their preferences for what exercises to do. Tell us about that. Yeah, that is actually a good segue to that because it really, I mean, what I do right now as a scientist is likely a direct extension of the coaching philosophy that I've developed over the years. I don't coach barely anymore because I'm a full-time scientist and I supervise students instead of athletes. But I was always under the, I was always, as a coach, I always wanted to get my athletes involved in the decision-making process. To me, imposing uh, directions on an athlete I, I truly is absolute madness because here there's a person with the ultimate source of, of, uh, of information that can provide it to me and assist me direct where we're going. And to, to put that person outside of that process is absolute madness. So, and 
interestingly enough, athletes, on my experience, are not used to that. Without th- th- this approach, came is what? What do you want me to do? And I was like, well, what do you think we should do? Athletes that have been dictated their whole lives. Okay, now we're today we're going to do this, this, and that. Now, of course, it's all within boundaries. It's not that I let the athlete decide everything. It's just it is boundaries within that. There's a some decisions that I'd like the athletes to be involved with. And of course, it's a function of the athlete that boundaries may be wider or narrower. Some athletes did prefer that I make more of the decision process, uh, the decision making process myself, which is also fine. It's their decision, nevertheless. Um, and I felt that over time, once the athlete would get accustomed to that, it would work. They, they would feel more engaged. They would enjoy. They're, they're part of the process. How could you? I mean, there's so much research to support what, what we now call autonomy supportive coaching. And as now as a scientist, this is one of the key themes that I look into is just the effects of providing not, not, not athletes so much these days, but just people. Uh, some decision-making uh, aspect in the training process. Nowadays, I mostly focus on resistance training as a modality, but have them have them make a decision. I mean, do they have any preferences as to between two, these two exercises? What about uh, should I impose? This is one thing that I'm big into right now. Should we impose a repetition range? Should a client or a patient or whatever should we impose a or prescribe three sets of 10 repetitions, or maybe that's the way I do things. Well, maybe we should do three sets of anywhere between eight to 12 repetitions. How many of that range? Well, you decide, you decide. If you're feeling great and energetic, maybe go to the upper end. If you're a bit fatigued and not feeling the best, we'll go to the lower end. So, so one of the benefits there is, you know, you're getting along better with your athlete, you're establishing more rapport, they feel, more comfortable with the process, they're more motivated, but you've actually found that it actually literally can increase performance too when they decide which exercise to do. Yeah, so we've done a few, stu- I mean, actually I've done one study on, on athletes and ever since we've done a bunch of studies on, uh, on athletes and non-athletes alike. And what we're finding is that we're actually finding that Performance is improved most of the time, but not all. We're somewhere around the 50-50 range. Uh, but if nothing else, it's it's definitely always in par with the fixed prescription uh, range, which is by definition non-individual, right? It's not personalized. 10 for me might be easy. For somebody else, it might be hard. So by that very definition, it's not individualized. And most of the studies that I've done are of shorter duration. I should keep that. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen if we follow this approach over a 10-week period. And yet, half of the studies we've have found that when we let people select a given component, how long they rest, the rep range, the load, all these different factors, performance does tend to improve. So at the very least, we're getting a simpler approach to training that is not based on assumptions that can be verified. I mean, the, the wider the, the uh, uh, selection is, the more likely it is to be individualized. Right? As I said before, if I give two of the same, and that's something that I target quite heavily these days in my research, and I use that as an example. If I get two people and I let both of them, I test their one repetition maximum, so I know what is the heaviest load they can lift once in a given exercise, okay? Say both of them can do 100 kilos in the squat. And then I say, all right, guys, let's uh, let's now perform three sets of 10 repetitions using seven, 70% of your one arm. So in a sense, I've equalized, I've standardized the program for both of them. But asking one person to do 10 reps with that load might be even impossible to complete. So they're reaching their absolute limit. Whereas the other person, they, she let's say she performed those 10 repetitions, but if we ask her to continue, she could do 10 more. So even though they're doing on paper the same thing, they should, we've standardized the intensity, so to speak, but we yeah. really haven't. And that's something that I've got a lot of uh, evidence to, 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 to demonstrate. So I, I know you're really interested in fatigue and what exactly does that mean? And, and, and how do we know how many reps are in the, how many <laughs> reps an athlete 
actually has in the tank because it, it's somewhat ambiguous, right? If you say, if you tell someone, um, work as hard as you can, and they say, I'm done, I've just worked as hard as I can, you don't really know whether whether that is true. So, I mean, talk to us about some of the, the research you've done and the thinking you've done about how we know whether someone's really worked as hard as they can work. Well, that that is yeah, that is uh, at the heart of the of the topics that I'm interested in, and and the bottom line. Let's start with the end. I have no idea. We can't really verify this, right? I mean, I remember when I was in Canada, and I had a friend over there who's a, a marine biologist, and at one time I went to his lab to see what they're doing, and that was a big epiphany for me from an exercise perspective because they test. Something that's equivalent to a to a, a VO2 max this, if you wish, of fish, and they have them in big water tanks, and they they uh, they have to swim against a, a fan that kind of pushes them back, which is an, an analogy to the the speed in which a person runs, right? And they gradually increase the the speed in which the the fan uh, pushes the fish back, and he has to resist it, which is. Up until this point, it's somewhat of an analogy to what we do when we test the VO2 max or running to exhaustion test with one big difference. The fish at the, at the end of the tank, there is an electri- uh, something that gave them the fish an electrical shock, a really painful shock. And they knew without any hesitation that the fish at some point just gave up. He was just there on the, receiving the shocks and he just couldn't move. The fish definitely reached the absolute maximum. Ethically, we'll never be able to do that with humans, so we'll never really know if they reach their true maximum. Uh, we can do some indirect work on that using electricity as well. Actually, we do use electricity. So, for example, some really cool studies from the past have uh, asked people to. Uh, I'm just going to butcher their study a little bit for the sake of uh, of an example. So they have asked people to hold their hand here for as long as they possibly can. They haven't done this exercise, but I think for the sake of the listeners, it will be easier to grasp. So hold their arm to their side and hold it isometrically for as long as they possibly can. Now, the effort, I mean, the, the force that it requires to keep the hand up is not very high, right? Because it's just holding your arm. And at the point of failure in which the subjects couldn't, quote unquote, continue holding their arm in parallel to the ground, they started uh, providing an electrical shocks to the arm that would produce enough force to keep the arm in place. They actually didn't do that with the arm. They did it with, uh, with an isometric uh, knee extender. And they found that they could hold the arm in that position for another minute. So it's quite remarkable. So that was actually direct evidence that people stopped, not because they couldn't, because they just didn't want to. And that is an important distinction. Yeah, I mean, I, at, at some point, uh, not wanting to and and not being able to are kind of the same thing if you really, really, really don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> but, but I will say this. So the more we approach uh, short and maximal uh, activities, so lifting the heaviest load you can lift once, I'm not sure. I mean, that is limited by... I, I, a, a physical chain in there, for the most part, I would say. The more submaximal we get, the more the this me not wanting to will play likely a larger role. Yeah, if I go up to a, a heavy deadlift and I can't pick it up, I'm pretty sure that I just can't pick it up. But if yeah. I went out and run, you know, five miles at a certain pace, and I said I gave it my all, I mean, could I have done better if someone went behind me with that with that electric shocker? I, I probably could have. It's hard to know, you know. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. So right now what we do is we just work off the the, the very problematic assumption that um, that we can that we can trust when people perceive to have reached their max. This is the only thing we can do. And this kind of ties us back to uh, rating of perceived effort, RPE, and things of that nature that we, we're looking into. We want to see whether we can prescribe training based on the, uh, the perception of maximal effort. Not necessarily the actual effort, the actual maximum, I'm sorry, because we can never really verify that. So we just go off the perception of. Yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah. So, so as much as it's kind of hard to kind of to, to know what people mean when they say, I just did a seven out of 10, or I just did an eight out of a 10, uh, there is research and correct me if I'm wrong, that prescribing exercise to people in terms of uh, rate of perceived exertion works pretty well compared to prescribing exercise to people based on objective things. Like, in other words, if I take some people and I say, this is exactly how many reps and sets of this much weight you're going to do, uh, and I intend for them to work at 80%, they end up working kind of similar to someone if I just go in there and say, work at 80%. Is that right? Yeah. Um, we'll put it that way. At the very least, it seems to be non-inferior at the very least. There's not enough studies on longitudinal studies, I should note, but those that are out there, and we're actually running some, we're about to start next month, a study of that nature, a longitudinal study to look into that. But at the very least, as I said before, they're non-inferior. And that is from a prescription perspective, it just makes life so much easier. So think about it this way, right? I can tell somebody, all right, I want you to do three sets of 10 repetitions using a given percentage of your maximum load that you can lift once. That is quite complex. And there's a bunch of numbers in there and it sounds really scientific. Exactly. Or I can tell you this, listen, just go into the gym. These are the exercises that you can do. You can select out of this list here. You can select four out of an eight, let's say, as long as you target lower and upper body, something along these lines, right? And I don't really mind the load that you use. It can, it can be a bit heavier, a bit lighter. It's really up to you. Try, try a few of those, uh, Load, see which one is more convenient for you, and then try to do as many repetitions as you can that would lead you to an, to about, let's say, a 7 out of 10 in the rating of perceived effort. Now, here's a really important thing that we're finding right now, and that is we're investing a lot of time and thought into that. Rating of perceived exertion or effort, that works, right? Prescribing based off that is effective. Well, one thing that we're really putting a lot of effort, no pun intended right now, into looking into is how we anchor and how we explain what effort is and what the 10 stands for. And for example, in resistance training, this, the modality that I'm using at the moment right now a lot, it's critical for us, at least we think, that we explain in very clear ways what we mean by 10. And once the 10, the maximal anchor is, is clear to participants, then we think that everything underneath it just falls into place. But in many studies and many applications in the field, the 10 is just this vague maximal, the most, it, it's just not really a well-defined endpoint. And when it is not well-defined, everything else is, is, is unclear because I mean, the seven relative to what? What is the 10 here? Maybe if it's unclear for one, one person might think of it as one thing, somebody else might think of it as another. If we match their uh, def the definition, then what the seven for one person actually might up being a four. You know what I mean? It's just, so we're really putting a lot of thought and effort into clearly defining what a 10 is. And, and, uh, and, and one example would be, a, one example would be a 10 is when you try to lift and you fail. Exactly. This is so it life is so you see, I, I'm lazy and resistance training makes in some regards studying RP a lot easier because it's very easy to anchor the 10. And yeah. exactly as you said, is well, you're trying to complete another rep, but you can't. And everything else is relative to that. Now in running and everything else, it's much harder to come up with a clear 10. We've tried and it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like, I, I like this. Uh, I, I often do my own kind of uh, week training with sometimes I'll do it with numbers. I want to do numbers and, and that makes me feel kind of scientific and, and complicated and like I'm following the science and other times I'll do just kind of a common sense. I want to go in there and go like almost to failure. And uh, you know, sometimes that just, that going almost to failure gets me to better results than, than the numbers, which may or may not be, be close to failure. And if I just, sometimes I just go into the gym and say, I'm going to do a few things in here that are fun and attractive. And I'm going to do some things that are really, really, really hard to complete. And sometimes that leads to better results for me <laughs> as an athlete than the writing down all the numbers approach. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to that myself. 
Now, I'd like to add one more thing because it is an important, I think a very interesting finding that recently we've been observing and the studies that we've been doing. So we compare the, the fixed and predetermined approach. So by that, I mean three sets of 10 repetitions, right? This is, let's say, the, the gold standard. Most people, I mean, most organizations follow this approach. And we're trying to use the RPE-based approach. So stop when you're uh, at an RP of eight, an RP of seven, things like that, right? And what we've noticed is the following. And then at the end of, I'm sorry, so we expose participants to both approaches. So let's say I'll have you and I'll have you train uh, a full session using the fixed approach. And then I'll have you go through another session using the RP approach. And then at the end of it, I'll just ask you, which, which approach do you prefer and why? And ever since we started doing that, and I regret not doing this, this simple component of the study earlier, because there's a lot of uh, insights in that, just asking people why, right? And what we've found is, is the following. So some of the people prefer the fixed approach. And the reason is they have a very clear endpoint of what they need to do. The knowledge of the endpoint, there's no uncertainty at the endpoint for them. And that seems to be a, a critical aspect for a lot of people. Now, so the other folks that prefer the RP approach, they felt more in control of the situation. They wanted to be in control, they enjoyed it. And it seems based on our emerging research that there's these two camps that might be based on some personality traits that we're not sure what they are yet because we haven't reached that point. But it does seem that those who need sense of certainty would benefit from a bit more of a fixed approach. And of course, it's not one on the other, right? There's a spectrum in between. And those who like to be more in control of the situation uh, and more in tune with themselves, I'm not even sure how to pinpoint what exactly that is, but they like the, the RP approach a bit more. Yeah, I, go, I, go, I know I go back and forth between them. There's some days that I find, you know, all of the things I've written down that I'm supposed to do is oppressive and inhibiting my creativity and I just want to go in the gym and do what seems fun and do and, and and all that stuff gets in the way but there's that there's another part of me that likes numbers and likes data and likes doing science and tracking data and I like to collect those numbers and I like to work towards concrete goals and so I can see both sides of it and I think that some people are way on one side and some people are way on the other and you should find out what your client likes to do yeah and that goes back to the beginning of our chat, right? Just to see who, who the person is. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah, really I want good point, the way you described it, though. I like the, the way you explained it right now. It made, it made good sense to me. Good. So I want to talk a little bit more about your research. You've done, uh, uh, looking into fatigue, you found that uh, you've looked into the question of non-local fatigue, which kind of helps us understand fatigue a little bit more. And it, it involves the interesting fact that by, for example, fatiguing your right quadricep can also end up to reduce performance in the left quadricep. How do you explain something like that happening? Well, this is actually, you're bringing it up in a, in a very interesting time because, uh, yeah, I have invested into this uh, type of research in the past. Uh, I've done a fair bit of work on that during my master's. And I, I still think it's a fascinating topic. But um, just recently, just I think a few weeks back, not even weeks, a large-scale meta-analysis that was published by my good friend, James Steele. Oh, I had him on just a few weeks ago. Oh, well, here you go. Well, uh, well by, uh, James Steele and I, we go back and forth every day. We, we send each other voice messages, sometimes 40 minutes a day. My wife isn't happy about that if he's listening. <laughs> so uh, we, we talk about effort and fatigue nonstop. But in him, together with my previous supervisor and good friend, David Bain, who spent a lot of time developing this topic, they've just published a very uh, impressive meta-analysis looking into non-local muscle fatigue, finding that for the most part, we're talking about a trivial effect. So this was uh, an interesting and I think in many ways suggest that science evolves and changes. And if you're being transparent with the data, you find things that are you thought were there, you thought were robust, but in fact may not be as robust as one thinks. One thing though that they did find is that with endurance components, 
So when the outcomes are more endurance-based, the effects may exist and may actually have uh, are more robust and consistent, but there wasn't enough studies to, to pinpoint that because most of the studies just used uh, short, intense contractions, like a maximal voluntary contraction. So here's that for you, right? Very interesting. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Well, I guess that takes us to our next topic is your interest in, I think what you've described as meta-science which involves basically looking at the scientific process and finding out whether it's really getting us closer to the truth or whether it's not, and whether we're measuring the things that we should be measuring and, and, and whether papers are actually replicating. So tell us about your, your interest in this and, and what you're doing to help make sure that science is actually <laughs> directing us towards the truth. Yeah, well, yeah, that, this is a fascinating topic. It's really broad and thankfully in exercise science and sports science has really picked up. There's a lot of people that are heavily involved in trying to push this forward. We've got some new journals uh, coming up that are really emphasizing that transparency and 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 talk, you see a lot, whole lot more of scientists talking about replication, about uh, re being transparent with what you've been doing with, with with the studies and your data, because unless that is the case, unless the scientific community is really transparent and what they're doing in their work, we might all be basing our, our decisions on skewed data or data that has not been fully reported for various reasons. Because we do live in, a, in an environment right now, in the scientific realm, the way things are done, that is in many ways suboptimal. So uh, right now, you know, us scientists, when we do research, our way that, I mean, you use a blog post. For me nowadays, I just try to get my work published in scientific journals. This is this is how I get rewarded by the system. This is how I climb up the ranks. And and yeah, for us to do that, then the journals sometimes, well, they just want to publish just positive or really novel results that might be interesting, but might not replicate. And then if some other scientists try to replicate that and they can do it, it might not be as easy for them to publish it. So then we're only left with a result that might not be accurate, but then that's all we're exposed to. So even if we're trying to be evidence-based and following the literature, we, we might just be completely following a wrong direction. And that is just unacceptable, right? It's just completely unacceptable. And unfortunately you see change occurring, change is slow, but you see people or communities, journals that are more open to, uh, to the idea of replication, to the idea of studies that are not novel and sexy, but are important because you need uh, to have a full view of what is happening to make a calculated and informed decision. So in my own world, I really emphasize with my students the importance of we're just at, there's no right and wrong. If we knew the answer to a study that we're conducting, there would be no point in conducting it. So I really, it's, critical for me, for my students to understand that they should never be disappointed on a result because we ask the question because we don't know where it's going to go. And I will fight to get it published, even if it means that we'll have to submit it to many more journals until it finds a home. Also, because it's critical for me that the scientific community will have access to all the results. So again, uh, applied practitioners, maybe like yourself, will have access to that and be able to make more of a calculated decision. Well, I really commend you in that and 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 uh, embracing uncertainty and and all of the integrity and hard work it takes to get to the truth. It's definitely why I've you know followed your your work for years, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, thank you. and I should note that is definitely mutual. I've been following you for years, many years, probably before you followed me. I should know. <laughs> I don't know about uh, that. And so uh, speaking of replication, um, I want to talk just a little bit about internal and external cues because that's something you've done research on about about and, and I've got some questions about that has replicated fairly well. It's a it's a robust area of research. Am I right? Yeah, it does seem to be quite robust. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And uh, so the basic yeah. idea is that directing your attention to something external in the environment while you're doing an exercise is generally superior than directing your attention to your muscles or joints while you're doing that exercise for purposes of motor learning 
and for performance. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's sorry. Sorry, I'm, I'm telling it to you. You're the guy that knows. But but here, here's no, my question. What what are the areas where internal cues might be useful? Uh, are, are there exceptions to this general rule? Yeah, well, first, you know, and, and, and I will be the first to admit that uh, I it, when I first got into it, I got a bit too carried away. And I think that happens. I dichotomize this as like. And then when you start to be overly concerned about using an internal cue, it's like, oh, I've used that word. That is not a healthy place to be, right? It's not, you're not going to be struck by thunder if you use uh, internal instructions. That, that is the first thing. It's, it's, it's fine. Uh, so it should all be viewed with a bit more of a, with reason, right? Now, it does seem that the acute effects on performance, so jump height or sprinting speeds or force outputs, things of that nature, you, you, you see consistent effects with external that leads to superior outcomes. That has been replicated in, in many independent labs. So I tend to believe that this effect is consistent and robust. And mostly for, uh, for uh, motor learning aspects as well. Now, there are, there seem to be, and admittedly, I haven't followed the literature as closely as I should, but there's definitely some room for internal instructions. Now, when and how, I suppose that will depend on the outcomes. But um, yeah, there's definitely some, so I, I actually, you know what, I'm hesitant to speak of when that should be the case, because I haven't deeply looked into that. But all I can say is the following, that the effects are not always as consistent. And there is those who claim that there is room to use internal instructions. So yeah, actually, I'll, I'll, just, I'll yeah. just be careful that I don't. Well, I know you don't want to speculate, but I'm going to invite you to speculate a little bit more. So, so my, one of my curiosities is whether internal uh, attention might be more necessary or more effective in the context of a very complex action that's not all that natural. So, you know, we already know how to throw, we already know how to jump, we already know how to run. Those, the, and those, those kind of movements are almost like encoded in our DNA. So, like thinking about what's going on in our body is maybe not as necessary. But what if you're learning a novel movement? like a swinging a golf club, which I've been working a lot recent, on recently. And uh, man, you can't help but kind of pay some attention to what's my shoulder doing? What's my hips doing? Um, you, you know, maybe it would be, maybe you could teach it better if you could somehow create a bunch of, um, you know, external conditions that you could pay attention to, to kind of learn how to swing a golf club. But the, the internal attention from time to time seems almost avoidable in these highly complex multi-step times of tasks. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I'll tell you what, I do tend to agree with that. I think that, uh, well, to begin with, there's always, I think, some solutions to bypass. I mean, the analogies come in extremely handy as a way to provide external instructions that will direct your attentions externally. So analogies in that regard, there's a body of literature showing that analogies really do a good job. And, and they also lead to, to less words and to one fluent motion. Assuming the analogy is effective, then you don't need to break up the movements and component. And why is that important? Because if, if you section the movements, especially one that can be viewed as a whole, then there's more rooms for errors because you got to transition from one component to the next. And instead of treating it as a whole, then you're just increasing the windows on which some errors may occur. But I should note the following. A lot of the literature is very dichotomous in a sense that you're comparing just external to just internal, and usually the effects are just immediate, right? And that is, that is a, an excellent place to be, and I've done some of that studies myself, right? So I'm to be to blame just as much. And I wonder what would happen if you'd used a mixed approach. That's point number one. Maybe if you do at times with, with some specific rationale as to why you would do that, if you combine the two, maybe that will lead to better outcomes, right? I mean, I'm not sure about that. I do think there's room, especially nowadays, that some of the things are established. We should use more complex designs because as time goes by, I mean, first, using internal instructions seem to be, at least for most, unavoidable. 
That is what most people, that's the go-to. And I do think that there might be some value into it, but I would be, I think, I mean, I don't know if the golf uh, swing would be the, the where I'd go with this, but maybe a very complex move that includes a lot of transitional points, then maybe I would consider that, but. Like a gym, like some gymnastic moves are like lots of moves put together and you learn them in isolation. And so like the whole, you can't just, there's no holistic way to learn a, a double yeah, exactly. backflip. You know, you got to, first you learn the backflip and then, I mean, first you learn to tumble and then, you know what I mean? You can, and then you stitch all these different things together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, area. Uh, another, another kind of curiosity I have is whether people, there might be people that are very, very different in their ability to successfully turn their attention inward. I've noticed uh, working with um, dancers have extremely high levels of body awareness. And so if you ask them, what does it feel like in this area and moving that area, they'll give you this incredibly detailed, it feels like this muscle is pulling on that muscle and then this is shifting over there. And, and the awareness is just amazing, which I suppose they need to be able to do what they do. And then a lot of people, if I ask them, what does it feel like in a certain part of their body? They're like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> or, or good or bad. And it's just like this, there's, it's, they're so focused on the external world that they, there's no resources here for, for them uh, on the inside at all, which is probably yeah, fine yeah. and quite adaptive for them, but different people are different. Exactly. And that's, that's a really good point. I was about to get to that as well, is, well, I can say this, and this is actually true across all the studies that I've done. We never see a, a perfectly um, clean effect going just in one direction. We see an effect that goes on average. So most people will respond better to the external instructions, but it doesn't mean that all of them do. I mean, say out of uh, 20 people that are a test, if I had to estimate a number, I'd say there's at least six that respond better with internal. They exist. That's actually a fair, a fair bit of a percentage out of those 20. So again, like, like everything else, you gotta really, using the examples that you just provided, really know who you're working with and not just blindly follow um, the instructions as if they're set in stone because yeah, for the most part and under most circumstances, external instructions may be superior, but that may not always be the case. Maybe there are some certain areas or certain exercises or movements that people would benefit from internal instructions. And then some people independent of that would benefit from that as well. Yeah. What about imitation? Now, there's another way that, that that kids naturally learn how to do stuff is imitating the techniques of other people. I remember growing up and being taught uh, to play tennis during the time of this is like the early 80s. And, you know, we had people like Jimmy Connors and Chris Everett swinging with this very level stroke right through the ball. And we were told this is the way to hit the ball, swing with that level stroke. But then you had people like Bjorn Borg coming on that brushed up on the ball like this at a totally different stroke. And I completely ignored the advice of my coaches. I didn't do what they said. I imitated what the good players were doing, which was this, uh, which was this other technique. So it seems to me that's kind of a resource for learning, which you know, might be different in different people. Do you, did, do you, when you're coaching technique, do you ever, what do you think about asking people to imitate what, what someone else is doing. Excellent technique. I mean, listen, at least in the sports that I come with, and I, I don't want the athletes to think about what they're doing. They just need to, they just, you're just overloading their system. They just need to respond. So in that regard, I always try to come up with very simple cues that encapsulate a lot of information. So as an example, when I corner an athlete, a fighter, I just tell them one, one cue, where I, sometimes I'll even go as far as saying, I name, I provide a name of an athlete that fights in a certain style. I yell that name and then I hopefully he'll just hear that name and that would just install that in his head and completely change the way he fights just because I, I said one, one term. To me, that is an effective cue, especially under stressful environment. But yeah, I, I think that one thing that, that uh, drives me is just to use as little words as possible that encapsulate a lot of effective information that can be acted upon. Um, so imitation is one of them because uh, it's think about it that way. If if you succeeded with your strike, if you, if you were taught, if, if you eventually uh, stroke the, the 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 club in a certain way via imitation, and somebody asked to explain how you did that, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. 
And I think that's exactly where, where I'd like my athletes to be. I don't want them to be able to explain because if that happens, that may increase the likelihood of them choking under stress. As if you, because by definition, that you need to break up the steps of how you achieve that goal. And again, as we discussed this before, there's a lot of, you're kind of chopping the movement into small segments. And then the transition from one segment to the other could be that uh, there's room for error there, for choking, for freezing points. I love it. I love it. That's, uh, that's great advice. And I think I know now why some of my performance and things suffers is because I really like to break things into parts and kind of analyze them and do the science on them. And just getting that overall aesthetic appreciation for the movement is, is sometimes missing. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go now. We, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Where can we learn more about your work and uh, find you on the internet and well, nowadays I have a, a, a very simple website at the very least that I update with my uh, publications. So my scientific work, if everybody wants to read that, they can find it there, just helperinlab.com. So this is where you'd find the dry information and access to all my publications. And then, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, I can be, I've got a Facebook account and Twitter, but I'm not as active as I'd like to be. So this is why I'm also thankful that you gave me the opportunity to, uh, to kind of share some of the things that I do. Any plans for the future that you want to tell us about? Well, right now, actually, a lot of the things that I'm working really hard on right now are the things that we've discussed. I'm looking heavily into RPE. I'm looking heavily into the autonomy-based aspects. And we're, I'm planning some big uh, studies in the next year or two. So hopefully that we'll have some more solid answers as to whether these approaches are effective as I think they are, but maybe they aren't. So I'll keep you updated on that. Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing what, the, what that is. Best of luck, and thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the time. I had a great time. All righty.